You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. Recently, in conjunction with the exhibition of the Caesar photographs, a panel of experts were invited to Smith College to raise awareness about the violation of human rights being committed by the Assad regime in Syria. This panel was held on February 11th in the Carroll Room at the Campus Center. Our topic this evening is, as I said, a very difficult one, accounting for torture and mass violations of human rights uh, in the Syrian conflict. Yet it's a topic that I think is absolutely central for understanding the Syrian conflict, including not only what's at stake uh, in the uprising that began five years ago, almost five years ago today in Syria, a peaceful uprising to try to bring about a change of regime in Syria. But it's also critical for understanding the brutality, the inhumanity with which the Assad regime has responded to the peaceful demands from its own people for political change. And, and as such, the photographs that we're going to be discussing this evening tell us something, I think, quite fundamental about the nature of this regime about the nature of the conflict that the people of Syria are waging against this regime, and tells us something quite fundamental about why it continues to be so important, despite all of the forces that now stand in support of the Assad regime to remain committed to the original goals of the Syrian revolution uh, and to continue to struggle for a better future for Syria. Um, not only for a future that holds out hope of positive change for the Syrian people, but a future that holds out some possibility for accountability, for accountability for the Assad regime and even for Assad himself for the crimes in which he and his regime uh, are complicit. These crimes are ongoing. As you may be aware, just last week the United Nations issued a report documenting continued abuses by the Assad regime, which the UN indicated amounted, amounted to nothing less than a campaign of extermination by the Assad regime against its own citizens. So these are not issues which are in any sense a matter of the past. They're unfolding even today. And what we'll hear today, I think, will give us enormous insight into how the Assad regime has operated, how it has conducted these operations of uh, mass torture, mass killings, this campaign of extermination. Now, as soon as I can get our technology to work again, we're going to begin with a short video. It's a video that's based on an amazing report that was prepared by Human Rights Watch called If the Dead Could Speak, uh, prepared by Human Rights Watch, and the video draws on the contents of, of that report. The report is available for those of you who might be interested. Copies are available. And after airing that video, we will have presentations from each of three panelists. Mr. Moaz Mustafa, the Executive Director of the Syria Emergency Task Force. Sarah Leah Whitson, who is the Executive Director of the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. And Ambassador Robert Ford, who served as U.S. Ambassador to Syria from 2010, 2011 until 2014. Although, if I'm not mistaken, Robert, your title changed at one point from 
ambassador to Syria to ambassador to the Syrian people? It did not. Stayed, stayed the same. <laughs> um, uh, uh, occupying a critical effort, a critical position in US efforts to respond to the Syrian conflict. You have bios of our speakers in your programs. I'm not going to repeat the, the bios uh, here. And following the presentations of about 15 minutes each, we will have some opportunity for questions and answers before the event um, wraps up. So let me again get our video loaded here, and we will turn to that immediately. Thank you all. We'll turn now to our speakers. And following that video, which I think you will agree gave us a very, very graphic sense of what's happening in the facilities administered by the Assad regime. We'll turn to Ms. Sarah Lewitson to begin and to perhaps provide some additional background and information that inform the uh, video that you just witnessed. Is there about 15 minutes? Hi. Um, thank you, everyone. Um, I know that that is a very difficult uh, video to watch, and it's not the first time I've seen it, but it is, uh, and it's also not the first time that I find myself so affected by it because the horrors of the images that we see in these photographs, um, you know, I, I don't personally think I thought I would be seeing in my lifetime is something that happens under my watch, under the watch of, of, of my government and other governments. Um, when we reflect back on the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust, and we reflect back on the Armenian genocide and the images of starving uh, uh, people and people deported and people detained and executed, I think I grew up thinking that wouldn't happen again. And here we are in 2016, sitting here looking at images of human beings being tortured, beaten, and starved to death um, now, today. And I, I find that just a, a horrifying reality. So uh, I, I thought I would just note that. The, the heart of the Syrian conflict really began with the issue of detainees. And the conflict continues to be fueled by people's anger around mass detentions and deaths in detention. Um, when the uprising against the Syrian government started as a peaceful uprising, the government's response was not to sit and negotiate and understand the grievances of its population. It was to fire uh, into unarmed demonstrators and it was to round up thousands and thousands and thousands of Syrians, like those we've seen in the images today, including women, including children, like Ahmed, um, and to put them in prison and, and, and to, to end their fate. Um, large numbers of people fleeing today are fleeing Syria, uh, not just because of the bombardment, but because of the possibility of detention. Um, the report we put out today is the first time that we have brought the stories of the victims in the Caesar photographs, which when they first came out, I think, uh, caused, uh, um, created so much attention and shock. Um, but we thought it was important to really understand who the people were in these photographs and what happened to them. And so these photographs are not just abstract. They're not just masses of images. They, in fact, represent real people and real families and real suffering and the story of a 14-year-old boy who was tortured to death because he had a funny video of Assad on his mobile phone. 
So what we did in this report, uh, we verified the stories of 27 detainees by interviewing families who had identified their loved ones when they first appeared on the website about how they were arrested, as well as former detainees about what they saw in detention. We matched the information from the families about the dates of the arrest and the security force that detained them to the victim that we found in the photos. In four cases, the former detainees we met had actually watched the Caesar victims uh, die or saw their bodies in detention. <clears throat> and we interviewed uh, former detainees from several facilities, almost all of which were military detention facilities, focusing on the top five facilities where uh, Caesar had photographed so many victims to find out why they died. And the what they described, which was actually echoed in a report that the UN released this week, was rampant torture, starvation, a lack of space and ventilation, and widespread infection and disease. They described watching others die in detention due to these causes. We interviewed military defectors who served at three hospitals in Damascus and watched the bodies being photographed and set for disposal as well as a former detention facility guard who described the conditions in which the security branch held people. Thanks to modern technology, we were able to geolocate the photographs from the collection using satellite imagery and 3D modeling, and found they were taken at the uh, 601 military hospital in Damascus. And as you saw in the film, we had a team of forensic pathologists from the Physicians for Human Rights who found strong evidence of torture, starvation, and prolonged standing without much movement in the photographs. Um, what our findings are is that indeed the Caesar photographs present an authentic record of mass deaths and detention. And we know that detainees today in Syria continue to suffer these terrible conditions that caused so many of the Caesar victims to die. The victims in these photographs represent just a fraction of the deaths just in Damascus, during the short period they cover, they don't cover all the deaths in all the detention facilities all over Syria. What's remarkable about these photographs is not only that they show a systematic, deliberate attempt to allow detainees to die, um, but the sinister uh, and, and pattern of photographing these images, of recording these images, just as uh, uh, abusive genocidal governments have done in past horrors and past atrocities. And I think it's for the anthropologists and sociologists and historians among us to understand uh, the pathology uh, that leads governments to so meticulously report their evil deeds, um, but they have allowed us to be able to have access to these deeds, to have this information that should be what the international community uses to insist on accountability and justice. Our persistent call, the call for a number of human agencies, uh, has been that there has to be accountability for these crimes, that there has to be an end to the impunity that continues in Syria, and that there will be no justice, there will be no peace in Syria without some measure of accountability, without some form of truth-telling about who is responsible for the crimes that you're seeing in these images today. I want to turn briefly to the political process that I think has raised the hopes uh, and continues to raise the hopes of so many of us. Um, the so-called uh, Vienna Statement that has left to the Geneva Dialogues that concluded 
sadly, apparently suspended now over a week ago, uh, in an effort uh, to bring uh, the, uh, some of the warring factions in Syria together. With over 200,000 dead, perhaps that number is actually much higher. Some numbers are now saying close to 450,000 dead. Hundreds of armed groups uh, with a leading faction controlling most territory, now ISIS. And yet, the government still responsible for the vast majority of the indiscriminate attacks leading to civilian deaths. What I find equally disturbing uh, in this scenario, it is in fact only the appearance of ISIS that led Western nations to intervene over a year ago today, and in effect to fight in parallel with the Syrian government and Iran against the common enemy. And it is only the continued gains of ISIS that led the West to accept, if not breathe a sigh of relief, at Russia's increased engagement of the war with ground troops supplementing advisors and airstrikes to support Assad's exhausted forces. Neither the United States nor anyone else took seriously the notion that it was still supporting moderate rebels, other than the handful who agreed to fight ISIS and met with humiliating and catastrophic capture and destruction. We have ISIS to thank for, really, for the re-engagement of this peace process that was meant to lay the ground for peace between Assad and the so-called acceptable opposition. Saudi Arabia was tasked with organizing the opposition, and Jordan was tasked with the list of who's out, not considered legitimate opposition, but terrorist. So the issue is no longer whether Assad will have a seat at the negotiating table, but which groups in the opposition will be approved to have a seat at the negotiating table. Uh, and of course, uh, as I mentioned, the talks have now been suspended. <clears throat> the Syrian government is today making advances with Russian support in regaining areas in and around Aleppo, while the tens of thousands of Syrians fleeing this expanded fighting are stuck at the Turkish border. There is a global game of NIMBY going on, not in my backyard, for those who don't know the expression. <clears throat> With, with Turkey facing tremendous pressure to allow in the almost 50,000 refugees at the border, but Turkey facing tremendous pressure not to let them out of Turkey, lest they arrive at Europe's shores. I think there are three important points to consider in the peace process that is underway, if we can still call it that. Most importantly, this is a war process, not a peace process. The Vienna Statement on which these talks are based contemplate a ceasefire, but only in part. The ceasefire, by its very terms, does not apply to actions against Daesh or Nusra or uh, any other group uh, the uh, uh, group deems to be terrorist. So Nusra and ISIS, the two groups controlling the large chunks of Syrian territory, arguably half the country, certainly at least a third, are excluded from the process and the war against them continues. So as a result, while one-third or two-thirds of this country may benefit from the ceasefire, if this peace process is to resume, the war in the rest of Syria will continue. Instead, what we're seeing is that the Syrian government gains from this outcome because it's effectively creating a unified global coalition, not to defeat him, but to defeat ISIS. And while the Vienna Statement says that the Syrians will choose which opposition will participate, 
In fact, it is the international coalition that is making the first cut of that decision. The very tough question that we have to grapple with is can there be a real peace process in Syria if the biggest armed groups are not at the table? Should they be? For many, it's obvious that Syria should, that ISIS should be excluded, arguing that ISIS is unique in its worldview and atrocities, so the only option is their destruction. Yet look at the atrocities we've just watched today and explain to me why one group is included and the other group is excluded. We know that many groups in Syria have carried out atrocities, including among the opposition, from massacring Alawi civilians in Latakia, torturing and executing journalists and aid workers, suicide bombing attacks in civilian areas. The extra-border nature of ISIS's attacks does not make them uniquely different, and I sadly venture to state that there's nothing unique about ISIS killings or even targeting of minority groups. One real difference is that they're less ready to negotiate or concede territory. I think the most interesting aspect of the ceasefires, the so-called regional ceasefires that the peace process proposes, is the vision for international monitoring forces to secure the peace. The language in the statement says the five permanent Security Council members will support a resolution for a ceasefire monitoring mission in those parts of the country where monitors would not come under threat of attack from terrorists. I don't know what those parts of the country would be, um, but this was an element previously missing from, uh, uh, from the Geneva communique and can make a difference in securing a safe zone that serves the interest of diminishing refugee flows. I think that such an effective safe zone is much more realistic than a no-fly zone because it has the prospect of protecting civilians not only from airstrikes, but from ground attacks as well. Um, two other points uh, on the peace process, just looking for my time cue here, uh, is that uh, President Assad is not going anywhere. Look at where we are from a few years ago when the US government was insisting that Assad had to go. Now, we are mainstreaming acceptance of the idea that Assad will be part of the transition process, and there's no mention of his being forced out before then. The debate is now about how long Assad will remain in power before elections take place, and even then, he hasn't ruled out running for elections again. There's uh, murmurings that Russia and Iran will dump him with appropriate guarantees for their own interests in Syria and Lebanon, but that's an uncertain outcome. Again, with the priority set on defeating ISIS, we can expect that the framework put in place will force the opposition to accept that there will be a post-quasi-peace Assad presidency. The statement contemplates a transition period of 18 months, reaffirming the unity, independence, territorial integrity, and non-sectarian character of Syria, maintaining state institutions, and protecting minorities big question mark whether the parties at the table would actually adhere to this. And it establishes a six-month period to establish a new governance structure, drafting a new constitution, leading to fair and free elections. I hope the irony of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates setting terms for fair and free elections and constitution drafting in Syria 
isn't being missed here. What's missing from the Vienna Statement, what's been missing from the peace process, and I think is part of the reason why these talks have stalled and failed, are meaningful, concrete gains to protect Syrians from the Assad government's ongoing abuses. While there's reference to ensuring humanitarian access to all parts of the country, the ongoing sieges uh, inside the country make clear that there is no confidence building to be had uh, when the Syrian government is at the table. There are no demands of concessions from the Syrian government that should be included in exchange for the global unified war against ISIS that the government is gaining from this process. There are concessions that should be demanded if we're going to be on team Syrian government fighting ISIS, but they're not being made. And these include concrete measures to end indiscriminate attacks on civilians. Certainly the regional ceasefires will help in this regard, but that will protect civilians now who are currently being bombarded. The release of political detainees, the end to torture, and the grant to access not just to prisons, but to all detention centers, and not just to the uh, uh, Red Cross, but to international monitoring groups. The suspension of laws that restrict freedom of speech and that have been used to detain and sentence journalists. A national dialogue process, which is frankly more important and should precede any constitution drafting. I'm not quite certain why the peace process continues to insist on that. And at minimum, a truth-telling process, if actual accountability is too much to ask for. These issues are not key security interests for Iran and Russia, and they should be able to force Assad to concede on those points. Yet the failure of the international community, the friends of Syria, to insist on these points, and to continue to highlight uh, the defeat of ISIS as the top priority uh, is, is a mistake that continues to be made and the reason that I think we're still stuck here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I want to thank Dr. Heiden for and Smith College for giving us this opportunity to come and speak here. And, um, and I thank all of you for coming and, and taking the time to, to, to look and see. You know, one thing that um, the Syrian people grapple with today is, is, is why the world has sort of completely deserted them, why nobody cares about what they're going through. And, um, and, and, and many times I, I remind people that just building up awareness and, and showing solidarity um, is as valuable to them as, as giving them when they are starving. As, as, as starvation is a weapon of war that the Assad regime uses. Um, but that's just as important to them as, as sustenance, and I think that's really important, important to keep in mind. Um, I, you know, Sarah made a good point saying that, this, that the detainees play a really sort of interesting role in this entire conflict. Um, it was children in Dara, which is a southern province, a southern city in Syria, that were riding on the walls, inspired by what they saw on TV, of coverage of Tunisia uh, and Egypt, nonviolent protests calling for democracy, universal rights, rights that, that everybody deserves. Um, and you know, they're very young teenagers, and so they don't even, I think, understand or fathom sort of what was going on. But um, they were arrested for, for their graffiti and, and tortured, um, uh, and when, their families went to ask for accountability, they were told to go home and make new ones. This was the spark of the Syrian revolution. 
And this was by the dictator's own admission the beginning of many months of peaceful non-violent protests that were taking place, hoping that the world would see and would come to the aid of the people that are protesting, first of all, for their democratic rights, things that countries like the United States always says it stands by and will support across the world. And the fact that the dictator that they were revolting against wasn't even someone who catered to Western sensibilities and was a sponsor of terrorism and was somebody that destabilized the region and continues, obviously, to do so. Um, and there was a song that was made right after these peaceful protesters, at the beginning only calling for reform, not even the deposing of the regime, were met, bare chests were met with bullets and unlawful arrests. And they made a song called Yahif, which Ahmed mentions, uh, or Ahmed's uncle mentions, was on the, on the phone, uh, where the reason that Ahmed was taken and tortured to death. It's not even a satirical video of Bashar, it's actually a really powerful song, a somber one. Yahef in, in, in Horani accent of Arabic means, oh shame. And, and I won't go through all the lyrics, but it just says, you know, shame, how can you shoot at your own people? We're just asking for reform, how can you shoot at your own people? We, 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 you know, and, and even talking to the army itself that was sent with these orders, saying, how can you shoot at us? That was the reason that 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 young man was taken into custody in jail. Um, I want to quickly just give you a quick understanding of who Caesar is, because he's a very brave man who was able to bring all of this evidence out to the world. Not to Syrians, because everybody in Syria knows what happens in jails. Many of us have family members in Assad jails and, and understand exactly what goes on every day. Um, but this gentleman, who's a, a very humble, simple man from rural areas of Syria, um, not very highly educated, apolitical. Um, in 2011, he was carrying on with his job that he's held with the government for many years before. And um, his job was a forensic photographer in the military police that goes and takes pictures and documents any accidents that happen under the auspices of the Ministry of Defense. So if there was an accident, a fire, or if there was a drowning, or if there was, you know, what have you, he would go, he would take photos, for documentation sake and, and forensics evidence, etc. Um, and in the beginning, in months of the revolution, I believe it was in April of 2011, he was asked to go to military hospital uh, 607 in Damascus and to go to military hospital 601. Uh, the two hospitals were the majority of the 55,000 photos that we have that, that we brought out um, are, are taken. And he saw there 15 men, women, children. So what he perceived as civilians that were tortured to death. And uh, he quickly went back and talked to a relative and said that what I saw was horrendous. I want to leave the country. Um, please help me. And uh, he just absolutely didn't want anything to do with what he had seen. Um, the relative contacted uh, a group in the opposition um, that now compromises uh, comprises the, the Caesar team that continues to work on this file and legal issues, among other things. Uh, and the reply was obviously, yes, absolutely, we're happy to help, but would you stay? And he very bravely agreed to stay, and his own reasoning for doing so was to let families know about their family members. He knew, as Ahmed's uncle details in, in the Human Rights Watch video, that, you know, there, people are, you know, you're asked for money, you're told, you know, you're living on false hope. Your, your loved one's probably already dead and you're paying his torturers still. 
And so that, that was really his, his main reason. He wasn't thinking about accountability and justice and, and all these other things that, that come across. Um, and, and he did this for two and a half years. Uh, Caesar took photographs, and when he was sick, he would come at the end of the week and take all of, all of the photos that were submitted on the, on the hard drive of the state computers in the headquarters of Damascus Military Police. Um, he, during that period of time, he actually gets, um, he gets promoted, and so he's, he's playing a role where he's helping archive, which helped even get out more photos, not just the ones that he had taken. Um, and continue to do, the, to do this until the summer um, of 2013. So as Sarah said, this is a snapshot in time and in place. Only 24 intelligence branches, only in Damascus, two military hospitals, and only from 2011 and 2013. Um, in 2013, other circumstances happened, which made uh, everybody uh, on the team sort of worried now for the safety of Caesar, and so he was smuggled out. Um, and, and now is in a safe place with his immediate family in Europe. Um, Caesar, someone again that doesn't want the spotlight, didn't even really fathom the portfolio that he was holding, um, wanted to do everything he can to do his own part. Again, something that is against his own nature. He's someone who just wants to live his life, he did his part. Um, he, it was very tough for him, but he came to the United States. Um, the Caesar team signed a memorandum of understanding with the FBI, um, along with other organizations like Physicians for Human Rights, Human Rights Watch, and others. Um, he, he testified in front of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in Congress. Um, he, he's obviously very scared and, and worried for his life and for his own family. Um, so he was sitting, I think it's the f one hearing, and I used to work on the Hill, where, where someone was wearing you know, a, a, a coat and a hoodie and thick glasses. And, and a hat, and, and, and still bravely sat down and testified, went and spoke at the Holocaust Museum, um, which invited us to, to go there and told the story, um, and went to the White House, met with Ambassador Samantha Power, uh, met with uh, the national security team of the president. Um, and I say all of this because he really believed, naively now, that if you're showing that we are living through a never again moment today, and you're showing it to the world and he would go that extra step beyond what he just wanted to do, which let families know about their loved ones, that something would actually happen. He did all of this and unfortunately we saw a whole lot of outrage, but zero action. Uh, and, and I can tell you if you speak to him today and ask him sort of what's the most shocking or disappointing thing is the fact that nobody cared about this evidence that we literally are living today's never again moment. Um, one thing he said in, in, uh, in the White House uh, was that, uh, which also sort of is, is, is something we should all remember, he said, you know, the, the thousands of people that, that are documented, that, that are dead, um, we can't ever bring them back. But there are hundreds of thousands of people that remain in Assad jail today that will face the same fate if we don't do anything about it. And unfortunately, we continue to, to do nothing. Um, I, I just want to sort of give you just part of, of his personal story and, 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 and who, you know, just a simple man that was able to do such extraordinary things. And, and you see that across Syria, very ordinary people put in extraordinary positions. And, and, and they're really inspirational people. And I want to remind, remind everyone that this isn't just two parties to this conflict. There are three parties to this conflict. There is the Assad regime. Well, 
if you if you start discussing with experts, I'll tell you there are thousands of parties in this conflict. But there is the Assad regime, and you have ISIS, which, by the way, was fought by the Syrian opposition and continues to be fought by the Syrian opposition um, before the world wanted to and afterwards, and has killed more Syrian journalists than just the two American journalists that got our attention, which, by the way, were there to, to document the strife of, of the Syrian people, um, and liberated Idlib province, Aleppo province, um, with no support or negligible support from the international community. Um, so it's not that the opposition is comprised of ISIS and different opposition groups and so on. It's ISIS which has, by the way, a mutual interest with the Assad regime to defeat any of the parties that want uh, a civilian, democratic, pluralistic government, uh, because that fits both of their narratives. Assad can say it's either me or ISIS, and ISIS understands that when it fights someone like Assad or Iran and what have you, it can actually use that as propaganda to recruit. If, you, if Assad kills one of its soldiers, it recruits more. But if an indigenous Muslim from his land is fighting against anyone that's coming, and uh, in, in oppressing them, then they actually lose their fighters, they lose their propaganda. And I think that's something that, that's important for everyone to remember. And finally, as we all see the refugee crisis, these pictures are one of the reasons, one of the main reasons for refugees, people that are fleeing. Many of these people in the 55,000 photos were not taken from their home or their place of work. The government did not have direct responsibility to go to their family and say, we took them. They were taken at checkpoints. Their name didn't match. They found a funny video on their phone. Uh, they were from a province or a city that, is, that has harbored revolutionaries or had protested against the regime uh, and so on. And, and that's all it takes. It just takes, you know, if the person at the checkpoint didn't like you, you you're taken into custody. Imagine that, you know, you're driving around uh, your town and, and you could be stopped at any point by a checkpoint and that could be it. That's the story of many of these people. Um, in the documentation that happened uh, with the three numbers, the number which is you're given as soon as you're arrested, the number of the branch, and the number, the death number that the, patholo the pathologist gives to you, was a system for other reasons the regime was using it to be able to win and if families found out about their loved ones and they had to release information, they would release a death certificate without releasing the body. Every one of these reports say they died of cardiac arrest. Everyone dies of cardiac arrest. But uh, the fact is that the regime documents and continues to document in that same way in processing uh, of these people. And finally, and I'll end with this, um, it's, it's also important to remember beyond the, the constant killing and arbitrary arrests that are happening all the time, the biggest reason for the refugees and the biggest killer of Syrians today is aerial bombardment by the Russians now, which takes out entire city blocks, and by the Assad regime, which has continued to use things like uh, barrel bombs that, that are just crude instruments of death. That's other than the chemical weapons, of course, and the use of chlorine gas and, and so on. Um, so I just want to sort of put everything in perspective, and, and, and it's, it's simpler then, then when you look at it from far away, especially when you go to the border, you meet any of these refugees or internally displaced people on the inside, and you ask them why they're in the state they're in now. They have a very beautiful way of simplifying everything um, and, and reminding someone like me who's advocating on their behalf outside that, that, that they still believe in the core values of this revolution, a revolution that, that they believe was there to give them dignity above all, and to also give them their democracy and their right to self-determination, not to be 
um, used as a farm for, for a dictator in his family. Thank you. Thank you. Um, good evening, and first let me thank you, Steve, for organizing this, and I'd like to thank uh, the people, um, you who have come to listen tonight and to learn about Syria. I applaud you because I know it's cold outside. Um, I'm here because I'm mad, I'm upset. And frankly, by the time I finish talking, I hope you're mad and upset, too. I'm not here to give you any good news. Um, I want to leave you with this question, and you have to answer it for yourselves. We're Americans. When we see evil, do we just look at it and sit on our hands, or do we do something as Americans? Not as people from the Duchy of Luxembourg, but as Americans. Now, what I want to talk about is what we saw in the film. I was in Syria for a year and three months before we had to close the embassy as the security situation got worse and worse. And I've worked in other Arab countries. I've spent 30 years in the region. The Syrian security apparatus, with its four different secret police agencies is on a level that really the only one that even comes close was Saddam Hussein, the Saddam Hussein regime. So what I want to talk about is when we saw these pictures in the United States government, and I was in the United States government until two years ago when I quit in, frankly, just completely frustrated with her policy, but I want to talk about the American government reaction to these pictures. Then I want to talk about the United Nations reaction to these pictures. I want to talk about accountability. How do the people who do this stuff, do they ever get held accountable? Do they ever go to trial? Remember the Nuremberg trials? Didn't some of those pictures look like the victims of Auschwitz? They were held accountable. Is there going to be anybody held accountable for this? I want to talk about how that's done. And then I want to talk about what are the prospects for accountability. And then I'm going to just leave you with that question again. When we see evil, what do we do? So first, the American government reaction. I speak with some authority on this, since I was the American ambassador in charge of the dossier. We have in the United States Department of State an office manned usually by lawyers, headed by lawyers, international lawyers, uh, that is called the Special uh, Envoy for War Crimes. And his job and his office's job, he's a small team in the State Department, is to look at the cases of war crimes around the world, whether it's in Africa, Asia, uh, Europe, Latin America, Middle East. Um, during my time, it was a lawyer named Stephen Rapp who covered this. And Stephen was very interested in this stuff. He helped develop dossiers. He had his team work on it. He had his team set up training programs for Syrians to learn how to develop the dossiers, collect evidence, corroborate evidence, work with organizations like uh, Moaz's organization, SETF, and Human Rights Watch and others. And they developed, frankly, a lot of information. Stephen has talked about it publicly. You can Google him, Stephen Rapp, R-A-P-P. They have a fair amount of information they've collected, and Stephen has been very outspoken about the need for accountability on this. And I have to say our ambassador 
to the United Nations, Samantha Power has been very outspoken about the need for accountability. Uh, Samantha's been terrific. You should know that these pictures were put on an exhibit at the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington early last year. You should know that these pictures were put on exhibit in the halls of the United States Capitol Building in Washington last autumn. The American government, at least Samantha and Stephen, have talked about accountability. I want you to think about this. There's a meeting going on in Munich right now. Sarah and Moaz were talking about the peace process. Watch what John Kerry says out of that meeting in Munich. See if there's one mention of accountability. See if there's one mention of the release of detainees. Remember what you saw in the film. Every day, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people are dying. Is there any mention of that in the meetings while they're drinking tea and, and, and coffee in the halls of in the halls of Munich today? Watch the news. Look for it. Second point, United Nations. The United Nations saw these pictures in April 2014. The French government, over Russian objections, insisted that it be put on the United Nations Security Council agenda. And there was a couple of hours spent where the pictures were shown, and there was a discussion about it. Uh, they brought one of the forensic investigators, a British guy named David Crane, who had investigated war crimes in Africa, in particular Sierra Leone. David Crane told the United Nations Security Council, having studied these photos, this was industrialized, systematic killing. And he referred to Auschwitz. He said he had not seen stuff like this since Auschwitz. By the way, I just want to underline a point that was mentioned in passing. These photographs, which came on thumb drives when he smuggled them out, when he escaped, they were given to the FBI. The FBI is considered the best US government expert in forensic investigation. He actually looked at the thumb drives. It's pretty hard to get the thumb drives, I'm going to be frank. But he finally got them. And the FBI looked at them and examined them and determined that the pixels were not messed with and that they were genuine. The FBI corroborated what UN investigators like David Crane had said. It is worth noting that just last week, Google this again, the United Nations Human Rights Commission issued a report. And it said that all sides in Syria have killed prisoners in detention. All sides in the Syrian conflict have abused prisoners. But it said the Syrian government has done it on a systematic and widespread scale. It did not say the opposition had done that. It said that the Syrian government's activities and the way it has treated prisoners amount to a policy of, quote, extermination. It did not say that about the opposition. I am not here to justify the opposition's abuse of detainees. Far from it. But what I want people to understand is that there are gradations, and there is one really outrageous set of crimes being committed that far exceed other crimes being committed. 
And if you try to lump it all together, you get mush. There's a really horrific set of crimes being committed, and there are other crimes being committed. None of them are good. But focus on the biggest problem, which is that. And it's happening all around Syria. The UN report that I referred to, that was released last week, said that the senior leadership of the Syrian government was aware of what is happening in its detention facilities. And because they are aware, according to the lawyers on the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission, by the way, the head of it is a guy named Pablo Pinero, I've met him a few times, Brazilian law professor, has worked in a variety of cases, not a particular Syrian expert, he's a legal expert. Um, Pablo and his commission said, senior Syrian government leadership, including President Assad, probably guilty of war crimes under both international law, violations of the Geneva Convention to which the Syrian government is a member since 1949. Syrian government acceded to the Geneva Convention in 1949, as well as crimes against international humanitarian law. So the United Nations has taken a pretty strong position. It is unusual for the United Nations to be that outspoken against a member state. I have to tell you, that is not the normal way the United Nations operates. So, pretty clear, Pablo and his team have developed dossiers. Stephen Rapp and his team have some dossiers. They all work together. Pablo and Stephen Rapp know each other well. What about accountability? What about holding some people responsible? Well, there is the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which has, for example, tried some of the people from Yugoslavia, the Balkans crimes. Remember Srebrenica? Remember Sarajevo? However, Syria is not a member of the International Criminal Court. And so the only way to have Syrian officials refer to the International Criminal Court is by agreement among the United Nations Security Council. And Russia has made clear it is going to veto any such effort. I want you to be mad. I didn't come here to give you good news. Every time I see John Kerry shaking Sergei Lavrov's hand, I have to tell you, it just infuriates me. And when John Kerry says the Russians are playing a helpful role, it infuriates me even more. There are other ways Stephen Rapp explored this. They could set up a special tribunal. That has been done in some cases, like Mali, for example. I'm sure Sarah can go into other examples. But that is going to be very difficult to find a country willing to host it, and who's going to pay for it. It's not cheap. Is there the political will, then, to do it? What are the prospects for accountability? And here's, again, where I want you to get mad. Meeting in Munich, I've already highlighted the issue about what they say about these detainees and accountability. There is one group that have been raising this issue constantly, and that is the Syrian opposition delegation. They keep referring to United Nations Security Council Resolution 2254. Google it. 2254. Read the operative paragraphs. In the middle of the text, you'll see an operative paragraph that says, arbitrarily detained people must be released 
and there must be international inspection of the detention facilities. An operative paragraph in a United Nations Security Council resolution is like an international law. You and the Russians voted for it. It is not something you negotiate. It was negotiated in the Security Council. Once the Security Council passes it, it's like law. It's international law. That's why a Security Council resolution is so important. Syrian opposition in Geneva two weeks ago and in Munich today said, hey, this is in the text. Release of the prisoners, plus stopping the aerial bombardment. The Russians call that a precondition. And I have to tell you, so did John Kerry. I'm mad. I'm upset. Syrian opposition walked away 10 days ago from the peace talks. They just said, this is not serious. You can't even get baby milk into areas that the regime is besieging. You can't get it to stop aerial bombardments. What are the prospects of major political compromises at a negotiating table? The American position is, there should be a unity government coming out of a negotiation. What that means in reality is the people who did this, I want to say this very carefully. You need to understand this. The people who did this are going to stay in their jobs. They will not be held accountable. And we will ask the Syrian opposition to sign on to that deal and work with them. Now, I've talked to them about this. And do you know what they say to me? What happens if I go home and three days later, the secret police come to my house and arrest me? Then what? Did you just see what happened in those films? Would you trust a deal like that? Would you trust the Americans to guarantee an outcome? How about a Russian guarantee? How about an Iranian guarantee? The American administration is very focused not on this, and frankly, not even on Bashar al-Assad in that conflict. The American administration is focused on the Islamic State. The Islamic State is an awful, horrible, barbaric organization. It's terrible. The Assad regime this year, sorry, 2015, the Islamic State only killed one-seventh as many Syrian civilians as the Assad regime did. The Assad regime killed seven times more Syrian civilians than the Islamic State. So when we Americans go to the Syrians and say, hey, there's a big problem. You all have got to go over there and fight the Islamic State. You've got to join with us. Ash Carter today, Secretary of Defense, said we need to get more countries to go fight the Islamic State. I just have to say, and what about this? We're going to ignore this? It actually matters more than that. We have American military personnel in combat operations in Syria now. We have American pilots flying bombing runs. I hope none of them get shot down. We have American special operations forces inside Syria now. The Pentagon won't admit it, but it's very much in the press. They're fighting the Islamic State. Have you noticed the reports coming that are being leaked out of the intelligence community in Washington saying 
The Islamic State, even though we're bombing it hard, keeps recruiting new people. It's basically making up its combat losses on the field. Do you know why the Islamic State is able to get recruits? That. So many Syrians get so angry at what the Assad regime is doing. Syrians, not to mention foreigners. So many Syrians get so angry about this that they join the Islamic State. And so the Obama administration focused on the Islamic State without dealing with the underlying conflict is actually going to keep us fighting in Syria indefinitely. And I find that, frankly, irresponsible to our own military personnel that are laying their lives on the line. So I'm angry, I'm upset, and I want you to be as well. Steve, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you all very much. All of our, all of our speakers observed that the images we saw at the start of our program are, are almost impossible to absorb, to make sense of. They're shocking, they're disturbing, but to understand them, to understand what produced the events illustrated in those pictures, to understand the broader political context, to understand the challenges we confront in responding to the events shown in those images. I think we've now been given, as a result of the presentations this evening, a really uh, rich and effective context that I hope will help us all not only remain angry, as Ambassador Porter suggested, but understand as well what it is that we're dealing with in the Syrian conflict and why it's so important to act. I'd like to give you the chance to ask some questions. Our time is limited. We can go over a bit because of the disruption earlier. Erica, what I'd ask, I'm going to give you this mic, if you would take it around to those who might wish to speak. I'll stand there just to acknowledge folks who may have a question. What I'd like to ask is that before you ask a question, identify yourself, and if you want to direct your question to someone in particular on the panel, please do that as well. Thank you. Generate NATO, 
and he generated American forces. I am not, I want to say this very clearly, I am not asking for American military intervention against Bashar al-Assad. Frankly, at this point, I don't want to risk a war with Russia. But there are other ways to put pressure on the Syrian government. It just requires a decision, and it requires commitment to do it without using American personnel. I spent five years in Iraq trying to set up an Iraqi government so we could get our forces out of Iraq, not looking to put American forces into Syria. But there are Syrians who are willing to deal with this, and those people need to be empowered. Thank you. Sir. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the, 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 the wonderful talks. Um, very depressing. Um, my name is John Western. I'm a five college professor of international relations. Um, 23 years ago, I resigned from the State Department in protest. My position at that point was the war crimes and was for Bosnia. Um, so what you all have been doing here is exactly what I felt uh, in 1992, 93, 94, 95 until uh, the aftermath of Srebrenica. But one of the things that strikes me about the conversation, I served on many panels at universities around the country um, in the, in, after I left the State Department. Um, and we were angry too. We were very angry at the indifference to the crimes against humanity, the genocide that was happening in Bosnia. Um, but at the same time, we also realized in the conversations with the community and also with others who were participating in the advocacy that it wasn't enough to just be angry, right? Because the complexity of the conflict in the Balkans, much like the complexity in the, of the conflict in Syria, means that it's very easy for the public and for politicians, quite frankly, to just see it as futile. There's a futility to this, and we can be angry about these pictures, and we should be an outrage. But we also have to give the audiences that we're trying to con convince to do something, something that they can do to make things effective, uh, an effective response. And in the context of Bosnia, we shifted the narrative from age-old ethnic hatreds about which nothing could be done. And I resigned in protest right after Warren Christopher said it was a problem from hell. And at that point, I just said, forget it. I'm not doing this anymore. But it wasn't age-old ethnic hatreds. There was elite manipulation, elite coordination, and there were particular angles we could take. So I guess my question to you is, I, I think you, Ambassador Gordy, you mentioned just in that last exchange, just a, there are things that can be done. It seems to me that to be effective in this advocacy strategy, you need to give us what can be done so that we can move beyond the kind of futility throwing up our hands that nothing can be done. Thank you. Let me ask, uh, thank you. Let me ask perhaps all of our panelists who might wish to respond to that. Um, Sarah, if you have anything to offer on that, beginning with you and moving down the panel. Yeah. It, it's difficult, it's a very difficult situation uh, for an organization like Human Rights Watch to be in, particularly when it's five years out and the configuration of what could have been done five years ago um, in what looks in hindsight relatively easily or a lot less easily. Today, five years later, uh, when Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall, uh, seems you know, infinitely much more difficult and much more broken. Um, you know, I think uh, from, from my perspective right now, the in terms of what we advocate within the realm of what the possible options are, the best option right now 
absolutely has to be a negotiated solution. That's crystal clear. Um, with the number of international parties involved, this is not something that is going to be won militarily, not with Russia and Iran uh, investing ground forces, you know, fighting on the ground and so forth. And so if the eggs have to be in the table of a negotiated solution, the question is how do you achieve that most effectively? The problem with the US approach is it really wants the problem to go away. And Kerry thinks if he could just be chummy enough with Lavrov, things will just be better and Russia will just solve it for us. I mean, that's really the opportunity to get and that's why I very deliberately said that when the Russians became in, uh, involved, you know, there was some, you know, public commentary complaining about it from the US government, but I, I do believe that they were relieved because for some reason, uh, which I really can't understand, the administration has decided that the number one problem is ISIS. And I just scratch my head to figure out why the Khorashan group in Syria was identified as a security threat to the United States. They don't even exist anymore. So it's difficult to specifically advocate with this administration when the reasoning that's led to identifying defeating ISIS as the priority is their operating momentum. And so what, what, I, what we continue to say is, okay, let's pursue negotiations, but robustly, aggressively understand that the principal problem in Syria is the Assad government, the principal criminal author of unique and horrible atrocities, as, as hidden as that they might be, is the Assad government and not ISIS, and make some serious demands that if even the Russians have agreed that there should be access to detention facilities, then insist on that happening, put it on the agenda. And instead, it seems to us the US administration has no interest in these issues that we do believe concessions can be made on. Stopping indiscriminate bombardment, uh, 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 ending the arrests of, 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 of civilians. There are things that can be insisted on that are not being insisted on. So that, you know, at least if there's going to be a peace process, and Assad is going to be at the table, at least there can be some marginal improvements uh, in the condition that civilians are living in. It's just very, very difficult because the priorities that the US government has identified right now are very, very far away from addressing this problem. Um, first of all, I wish there were more people like you, and I wish more people resigned from the State Department, and I wish Samantha Power would resign from her position. I love her. I have met her back when she was at the United Nations Security Council and uh, the UN, I'm sorry, the, the, the National Security Council in the White House. And, and I met her with Caesar uh, as she was the UN ambassador. And if she believes that she's helping from within, um, that's my own justification for someone I idealized. I've read her book, I've seen her TED Talks and all of that. It's, she's become a case study of what's in there. And that's a fact. And, so if there were more people like you, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But there's not. And there's different things. What can we do as individuals? And, and, and what can our government do? The president, not only it's not only about prioritizing ISIS as a number one problem. The president was never interested in helping Syria in the right way. This is his ambassador. He was there on the ground. He was there before. And now he's here now. And you can talk to him about the specifics of policy. But the fact is, there was never a serious 
the one thing that the president, and this is my own speculation, would do is would take back his red lines comment if he can do anything to change his policy. He believes what he's doing is right. He believes that strategy in Syria is brilliant. And it's very hard to convince him otherwise because I think the advisors close to him, which we've met, Dennis McDonough and others, are reiterating. And this is someone who worked as a field director for President Obama, and the only politician I ever donated money to was him. So it's like being stabbed in the back. This isn't someone talking out of partisanship or anything else like that. Um, if I could wave a magic wand and, and have the US policy change without waiting 11 months, which I don't think we have, it would be to protect civilians from aerial attacks. Not just in terms of allowing the rights sort of fertile foundation for a negotiated solution, as Sarah said, that's what every Syrian wants to see. The fact is, in Geneva too, when they went to negotiate, uh, Brahimi, the UN envoy himself, blamed the regime, and the regime was simply not willing to negotiate. And if you think that a regime which has Russian Air Force, Iran, IRGC, Hezbollah, uh, Russian advisors on the ground, Iraqi and Shia militias and others, mercenaries that are there fighting for him, would want to negotiate now that he believes he can have a military victory, then we're all kidding ourselves. The only reason there's a political process out there is because the president has to say something when you ask him what he's doing about Syria, and he can point to, oh, we're working on a negotiated solution. And, 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 and Secretary Kerry is either delusional or really, really, really does believe that he somehow can diplomat himself out of whatever you know thing, which, and, and, and that's the case. But if there was an end to the aerial attacks, the fighting against Islamic State would be much more efficient. Two provinces, Idlib province, in six days was liberated from ISIS completely by indigenous Syrians on the ground with negligible support. We never heard Kerry go out and say, we applaud those efforts. In Aleppo, where they were well entrenched, in less than a month, they were able to, to, to get them out. They're getting bombed at the front lines by the Assad regime in, in front lines with ISIL. I'm talking about national security things. We're getting the children and the people dying and so on. An end of the of an air protection from aerial attacks ends the refugee problem. There are a few million, hundred thousands and so on outside. There are eight and a half million internally displaced refugees. I see them every time I go, I'm leaving again soon. I see these people, they're under olive trees, they're just sitting down and getting bombed as we're watching this happen. If anything, we've prevented the opposition from having protection against aerial attacks for whatever reasons. And so for our government, there needs to be an enforcement mechanism and a seriousness at the presidential level for any negotiations to, to actually be successful, and that's simply not there. And for us, there's a lot you can do. I mean, I, I, at one point, I gave up on doing stuff in Washington and, and started opening the offices and worked on the ground, working on, on supporting civil councils and civil governing structures with the help of the United States. Um, and, and other Western donors to try to have grassroots democracy from the ground up, to try to work with health civil society, which was non-existent in such a horrendous security state. That's not like Saddam Hussein, it's like North Korea. And, and that's what Syria would end up being, definitely, if Assad stays in power for going forward. Um, but what, the, what we can do is, first of all, talk to your politicians and your representatives, at least lay the groundwork in Congress for when a new president comes in, we can at least have them push for a reassessment and a review of this policy, build awareness for what's happening, donate as much as you can to groups like the Syrian American Medical Society and others that are doing humanitarian work, help the refugees when you can, the ones on the border, going to Greece and volunteering there or other places. Um, 
that doesn't solve the problem, but it's the least we can do. And at the very, very least, one thing we always do when I go to camps is I bring cards signed by American kids to Syrian kids. And it means the world to them that, that people actually care. I often wish I could have taken every person in America to Syria before so they could meet Syrians, and then maybe we would have done a lot more to prevent what's going on to them today. But thank you for, for what you've done. You really are an American hero for what you've done. And I would, I would only add one thing before turning to Ambassador Ford. You mentioned uh, engaging with politicians. We're in the midst of a presidential campaign. And whatever one's preferences, whichever candidate you support, ask your candidate what he or she will do to end the Syrian conflict and ask for specifics. It's not that hard. Absolutely. Ambassador Ford. First, thank you very much for your comments and my hats off to you. For, I remember reading about you while I was in Egypt, so my hats off to you. Um, you asked what can be done. I think the most important thing is that the public, whether that be newspaper editorials or members of Congress or other people with access and influence in Washington, need to demand of the administration a workable plan for what it's going to do to end the underlying conflict. Um, it's not enough to just hope that the Russians are going to change minds. The Russians are cold-blooded realists, and they want Assad to stay, and they're doing what's necessary to keep him. So what is the administration going to do in response? Hoping for a diplomatic solution is not a strategy. So I think over and over, the question has to be put to the administration, what's the strategy? You're deploying American military personnel at risk in eastern Syria. What are you doing to deal with the underlying conflict? How do you define victory? How long is this going to take? And when we, if we ever do get rid of ISIS, how are you going to make sure it doesn't come back again? Just like it came back in Iraq, by the way. So. Um, Steve mentioned asking candidates. That makes great sense to me. But I actually think there needs to be a public dialogue between now and the next election, which means stuff in the press. I'd like to see members of Congress. I saw you have an office of Joe McGovern here. What's he doing? What's he saying? I don't hear much about him on Syria. Taking him to the border. He's seen. Yeah, but I'm not hearing him talk about this. And we have U.S. military personnel in Syria. So this is not a small thing. This is not a small thing. Um, there are other things the administration can do, and I'm not going to go through a policy list. If somebody wants to, I can do it. But I would just say this, and I think this is important, what Steve said about asking candidates. In the Arab media in the Middle East yesterday, the headlines in a number of newspapers were, Assad wins the New Hampshire primary. Now, why? Because Donald Trump on one side and Bernie Sanders on the other side, both of them have said that problem between Assad and the opposition is not America's problem. Islamic State is our problem. I'm going to carpet bomb was what Trump said. Sanders hasn't said that. But the interpretation among a lot of analytical people in the Middle East is that the Americans don't care really about Syria. If that's if those candidates are consistent in their positions, 
So, of course, you can imagine inside the presidential palace in Damascus as they're reading these press reports that come to them in the Arab media, uh, do you think that's going to deter them? Do you think there are going to be orders down to these colonels and captains that are beating and killing prisoners? No, just the opposite. They think they've got carte blanche. So what Steve said about demanding of candidates that they answer the question about the underlying conflict and accountability, I would just like to underline that 10 times. And it needs to be done not just in town hall meetings. I'm from Vermont. We get town hall meetings on bigger places, bigger cities in the United States. You can't do that. But I'd sure like to see the American media asking that question daily, since we have daily American military personnel in Syria. So it seems to me it should be raised daily. We don't know how long they're going to be. You know, we've had US forces in Syria now a year and a half. You don't hear about it because we haven't lost anybody yet. When we do, questions are going to be asked, how did that happen? Just telling you, you need to be raising the issue now. Thank you. Let's take one more question. Erica in the back there. Uh, David Bendikoff, Director of Military Studies UMass. Thanks to all of you guys um, for your blackness and passion. Um, it, it seems like in this area, one thing that a lot of people do think can make a difference is refugee advocacy and working you know, with refugees. And listening to what you all said, I'm actually wondering whether you think sort of focusing a lot of efforts on um, you know, trying to increase refugee numbers and work with refugees that are here is counterproductive or, or in some ways, you know, not at odds with, but not helping what you're talking about. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I am really curious to, he to hear what you think about that, despite the fact that you know this has been an area in particular where a lot of people here, a lot of people in this room, really you know care and making making a lot of difference. And if you don't think it's kind of counterproductive or distraction, um, do you have any particular comments about in in the election year and? In the current situation where Turkey's, you know, where Europe's closing up, where Turkey is you know, sort of a bottleneck, um, where to focus one's efforts on the refugee advocacy side of things. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before our panelists address that briefly, I just want to make an announcement for the Smith students in the audience. I know you have other commitments this evening. Tomorrow, the um, Lewis Center for Global Studies is hosting Sarah Whitson. Um, in a global salon uh, that will begin at noon. Uh, and that is an opportunity for Smith students to interact uh, further um, with uh, a member of our panel here this evening. And I hope all of you, many of you, will take advantage of that opportunity tomorrow at the Lewis Global Studies Center. So please, we'll end with your responses, Moaz, to that last question. Just to, to quickly say, it's not counterproductive. And it's actually very kind of one thing I, I noticed and I was talking about this earlier is, you know, at the beginning the, Amer the Syrians were always sort of pleading for American help. And then over time they were sort of just confused, like why do they, like why have we been deserted? Why, why are we, you know, completely left on our own, etc. And now um, they ask why they hate us. <laughs> and it's really, really depressing and it's really hard to even explain 
because you know, 10,000, which is what the president announced, is a joke of a number, but it, compared to the millions that are 12 and a half million displaced Syrians now. Um, so I think it's, it's helpful, it's not counterproductive, it should continue to be the focus, um, because it's one way of showing the Syrians that, that people care for them, and at the same time, I think it's educational for those helping them. You know, talk to these refugees, ask them why they left, ask them what happened to their families, ask them did they run away from ISIS or did they run away from the Assad regime, ask them what would defeat ISIS. I think they sometimes are some of the greatest teachers in terms of what the reality is. It can help in the advocacy of actually solving the problem. So it's not counterproductive, but it does not solve the problem. These refugees don't want to leave. They want to stay home. Um, we should help them stay. Uh, it's a triple-edged sword, and I think you put your finger on yet another one of the very painful dilemmas of, of the uh, Syria crisis. Um, on the one hand, there are the legal humanitarian obligations that Human Rights Watch calls on, which is for a fair distribution of refugees, for burden sharing uh, across Europe, across the Gulf, uh, not just giving money to Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan to take refugees, uh, but to take the refugees themselves, uh, and so forth. Um, but the reality is that uh, the farther the refugees go from Syria, the less likely it is that Syria will survive as a country. Um, because it is ultimately the ones with the most means, uh, with the best education, with the best connections that make it to Europe and, 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 and far from Syria. Um, what we should all see in the refugee tragedy, and the only silver lining of refugee tra tragedy is that it is one of the two reasons, one ISIS, two the refugee crisis, that has refocused international attention on the need for a political solution urgently now um, is for the Syrian refugees to go home and stay in their homes. Syrians want to be in their country. Syrians want to build their country. So all of our efforts should not be about resettling refugees and, and, and providing aid to refugees and so forth. There are millions of Syrians still inside the country who are not yet refugees. If the Syrian refugee issue is going to be good for something, it should be on pressing everyone, hands on deck, to say how can we recreate Syria that Syrians can live in, in peace and security. And so to that end, I am actually pleased that there's increased focus on attention on providing work opportunities for Syrian refugees in Turkey and Jordan in particular, also Lebanon, because that holds out at least a little bit of prospect if they're close to Syria and gainfully employed nearby that they might be able to go home because the reality is once Syrians are resettled in Germany and France and Norway, even the 350 in the United States, they're not going back. And that is an ultimate brain drain, human drain from, from Syria that just can't afford. I think it's really terrific um, from both a, just a human solidarity point of view to try to help get refugees. Um, into other countries, into the United States, elsewhere. I co-signed a letter with about a dozen other former officials um, urging that the president not uh, bring in 10,000 Syrian refugees, but 100,000 next year. Of course, that's going to take a lot of resources. The president needs to find those resources. The Congress needs to find those resources. It can be done. It's just a matter of administration, management, and resources. Um, but it's an urgent need. Children are freezing to death. Let me say this again. Children are freezing to death in refugee camps in places like Lebanon. 
So I, I respect what Sarah just said about rebuilding Syria, but right now I'd just like to get it so that we don't have children freezing to death. Um, there is a political angle, which I think is useful to remember. The Islamic State, our Caliph Baghdadi out there, um, says the West hates us, and so we have to fight the West. Actually, showing compassion and some movement on the refugee issue is a good way to underline his recruiting argument. Not saying it fixes the Islamic State problem, it most definitely does not. But fixing the Islamic State problem is going to take a multiple-pronged effort. There's a military angle, a political angle, an economic angle, etc. The helping on the refugees is one thing on that list um, that helps with the Islamic State recruitment problem. So we have an interest, we have a national security interest in, and frankly, it's the right thing to do. Thank you. Again, thank all of you for coming. Thanks to all of you. And, and please join me in thanking our panel.